you know, Gloria Stein started it in the seventies. Right. And so I discover Ms. Magazine when I'm 17 years old and I'm like, what is this feminism? This is bananas. Never heard anything like this. Right. Welcome fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr. And I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. All right, all right, all right. Another great episode of Humanize <laughs> is upon us again. Um, today, I'm so excited as a civil advocate, activist, I'm sorry, to be speaking to a colleague um, and hope to, hopefully a new friend. Emily and I are working tirelessly to bring, to make actionable steps towards what we see has to change in the world. In my opinion, activism should be an active process. Some feel it could be a spectator sport. We could leave it up to debate, you know? But um, I feel like we definitely need to put legs, shoes, socks, and walk this process towards freedom together. And the only way to do it is to have these uncomfortable conversations. So today we're here with the great Dr. Melissa Bird, and she is just that, a rebel, um, an activist, a powerful, powerful, powerful woman. And it is my honor to be in this seat and bring her in. And Emily, let me ask you, how are you feeling about this amazing guest we have on today? <laughs> I am super excited. Missy, welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I feel particularly, you know, inspired to hear about her path and about like, you know, what does it mean to use your voice to to work towards things, especially as a woman? Because I mean, today, this morning, this last night, as I wake up, you know, I'm really focused on this question of gun control and background checks, AKs, um, all these things because of the shootings here in Boulder. And I can feel myself with this, like, does anything I do really matter? You know, like, if I take to the streets, does it matter? If I give to these organizations, does it matter? Like, is anything going to change? I don't, I haven't seen anything change. So I may or may not co-opt this as a personal coaching session, <laughs> but that's where I'm at. I am um, really excited to hear from you. So that's where I'm at today. How about you two? How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so thrilled. You know, this really speaks to the power of social media and how we met because you found me on Instagram. And so lots of people, you know, bitch and moan about, um, about social media and the evils of social mm -hmm. media. And I actually think it's one of the most powerful tools for connecting people mm -hmm. and helping us connect at a whole different level. And without it, I think, things like conversations like this wouldn't be able to happen. So yeah. I'm really happy to be here. Yes. It's really exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know what, every time we have a, a guest, I get kind of like starstruck, you know, and, and, and we both are stars. I, you know, I guess that's the humility <laughs> in this work, you know, um, and uh, just the ability to see brilliance in others, you know, that's what 
makes human eyes the greatest podcast on air right now. But um, seriously, I feel really great and privileged to be here today speaking about activism, especially during a time of um, so much harm and so much pain in the world and seeing what we can do to really affect change and uh, bring about something that we see and we know should change for the future, for our futures, for our children, for next generations. And so uh, just to be in this conversation, I feel really blessed to speak to like-minded women about a needed culture shift, a needed set of discomforts um, that has to happen so that we can get to where we need to be is something that I feel very proud to be part of. So I'm really excited today. So Courtney, can you tell our listeners just a little bit more about Lucy and how we met and what her work is? She's a rebel, man. She speaks to my soul. When I saw the the tweet, you know, and, and by the way, let me read it. So I, I don't mess it up, you know. First off, dear white media, right then I was like, oh, antenna raised. What are we about to say now, you know? And so, dear white media, this is what terrorism looks like. You can say it here. Let me help. Say it with me, terrorist. This is not a protest. It is unlawful assembly. Call it what it is. With that tweet, you're referring to the Capitol insurrection. And as I, I remember seeing it, and I think I, <laughs> I called Emily, and I was like, yo, am I tripping right now? And she was like, yo, hey, hey, stop stop talking so much. My, my daughters are on the phone. You know what I mean? Like, I know you're about to go crazy. <laughs> yo, <laughs> I, I was like, yo, this shit's about to get real. Like, I feel like I was watching a movie. And so just to know that if it was um, Black Lives Matter or any other individuals of color that were protesting and they're doing certain things because they felt an injustice. It may have looked a lot, in my opinion, it would have looked a lot different. Oh, hell yeah. You know, and so, you know, and so um, when I saw that text, I said, yo, we got to have this, or we got to have her on. So I reached out and normally when you reach out to somebody, they don't respond. I got a quick text. I said, oh shit, hey, hello. What's going on? You know? And so we just went back and forth and um, we set up an initial interview and one thing led to another. And um, here we are today. And and again, I'm so excited. So that's how I got with this rebel, this activist, this powerful human. And I'm ready to see what happens. God, that was a good tweet. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) Yeah. So, Dr. Melissa Birch, let's tell you a little bit about her. And then we just want to hear about your story and go into this this idea of activism as you you teach it in your work. So she's had a pretty unique life purpose in terms of using her talents as a healer and a prophet to help others tap into their own intuition so that they can harness their magic. And her words awaken revolutionaries and trailblazers and powerful innovators in the quest for justice. So she is a public speaker and she's also a teacher. And I, Natural I'm, Born Rebel. Natural Born Rebel is a course that she teaches. And yeah, I'm just so excited to hear a, more about like how you inspire uh, women in particular to to use their voice and and speak up, as well as how your your life journey has had many different intersectionalities of identity and triumphs and turbulations and and all of that that you're willing to share. 
So my question for you as we start off is like, can you take me into this moment that you told me about that you're on, on a corner as a, a one woman protest when you're 17 years old? <laughs> I don't even think I made it to the corner. Like, so I grew up, I grew up in Park City, Utah, when Park City was actually a small town. Like, you know, my dad played rugby. My mom, I don't remember what my mom was doing. I think she was in nursing school or something. And, and like, I, you know, I grew up in this really small town in Utah and it's the rebel, it's the rebellious town. It's typically not LDS. It's not very Mormon. And it's like, you know. I'd go take my dad out of the bar after the rugby games and bring him home and like, you know, stuff like that. And so I discovered Ms. Magazine when I was 17. Ms. And Ms. Magazine. Okay. Which is the, um, this, you know, Gloria Stein started it in the seventies. Right. And so I discovered Mm -hmm. Ms. Magazine when I'm 17 years old and I'm like, what is this feminism? This is bananas. Never heard anything like this. Right. And, And so I start reading it and I'm like, this is an atrocity. Like, you know, Ms. Magazine is so great at talking about local and national and, and international issues. And I'm like, I'm learning all these things about abortion. Like, what is this abortion? Like nobody ever talked to me about that Mm. kind of stuff. Right. I knew what birth control was like, let's be really clear about that. But I'm learning all these things about justice. What is justice and environmental justice and social justice. And I'm like, holy crap, what is this magic? And so I would talk to my friends and be like, we have to be really mad about these things. This is an atrocity, like, like women being sold into slavery, like all these things that Ms. Magazine covers. And my friends are like, what? And I'm like, I'm going to protest. I'm walking out. Like I'm done with this. And I I was like trying to do these, these protests and none of my friends would go with me. They'd be like, Missy, we're not going to get in trouble for this. Right. And I'm like Uh walking out. One of my favorite protests that I ever did was we had a policy at school that we couldn't dress up for Halloween. And the day before we were going to state volleyball was Halloween. And I wore black thigh high boots, black fishnets, my black leather mini skirt and my shirt. And like I did my hair all dramatic. And I, I mean, I was wearing clothes. <laughs> and they she were like quotation marks for Halloween. Up right now, I use by quotation the way. Mark. I was wearing clothes. clothes. <laughs> and I, I like I like going to school like no big deal. And this was my one woman protest, right? And the volleyball coach was like, What are you doing? And I was like, Nothing. And she's like, You are protesting the Halloween costume ban. And I was like, I'm not gonna dress like this all the time. <laughs> but she was like, It's the day before state championships. Like, we have to go to state, you cannot get suspended. And I was like, what am I going to get suspended for? And she's like, you cannot protest us trying to tell y'all that you can't wear costumes at school. And I was like, oh, but I can't. And I am. And go ahead and kick me out, Gail, because I'm not changing my clothes. Mm. And I didn't get to go to state that year. Oh, wow. <laughs> As a high school athlete, oh. I can I I know that that's a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> You're willing yeah, to. It was. Sacrifice. It was a big deal because I was yeah. like, why are you policing the way we're dressing? This is so ridiculous. So that's how it all started mm-hmm. was with Ms. Magazine. Someday I hope Gloria Steinem listens to this podcast and <laughs> like knows that it was all her fault. Um, and that's where it started. And I've always been a rebel. Mm-hmm. Always, always, always been a rebel. And my rebellion has led me on this really amazing journey. I uh, actually left for college shortly after that and um, 
I went to the University of Alaska Fairbanks because it was the furthest distance I could get from my mother. I love her, but at the time I did not. And it was the most horrifying experience of my life because it was dark and it was cold and it was isolated. And I didn't realize what really what I was doing. And I learned a whole lot about injustice and poverty and native issues. And I'm Southern Paiute, you know, I'm from Utah. My great great grandmother was killed by the pioneers. Oh, wow. The daughter of a slave. My great grandmother was sold into slavery when she was eight. Oh, God. And, you know, that's the whole story of indigenous folks in Utah that we never ever talk about. Mm. And, and so I learned a lot when I was in Alaska. And then I came back and I ended up being homeless uh, for a little while. Mm. And, um, I went to San Francisco to couch surf on a bunch of different friends' couches and learned a lot. And I figured out that being home wasn't so bad, right? Like no matter how much I wasn't getting along with my mom and my dad, like at least I was home and Mm -hmm. and I had a place. And I realized when I was moving about in San Francisco and in the Bay Area, I realized very quickly how much privilege I had. Mm Because no matter how awful things got with my family, I still had my family. Like they were not rejecting me because of who I was. You know, there's so many LG. That was when I first encountered LGBT kids, homeless kids was Mm -hmm. back then in the early nineties. So this is like 1993. And, um, before we were even talking about homeless LGBT kids or homeless kids at all, like we were not having these conversations. And so I came back to Utah and ended up going to school and got my degree in human development. And I was going to teach preschool for the rest of my life. And uh, you can't make a living wage teaching preschool, which is one of the abominations of our country. Right? Yeah. We don't pay for early childhood education. We don't pay early childhood educators what they're worth. And I, I desperately loved being with four-year-olds. Like they were the greatest things ever. And okay. then um, let's just note that that's nuts. <laughs> as, I know as a I mom know, right? of a three and a five year but old, it, right. <laughs> I'm and exhausted to it, even think of a classroom like that. <laughs> I understand. And it actually made me one of the greatest lobbyists ever because I would look at the elected officials mm. and be like, is that a good choice or a bad choice? <laughs> Preschool teaching comes full circle, right? Comes full circle when you're a lobbyist. Like, really? We're going to make these choices. So. Oh, wow. That's great. That's great. Uh-huh. But the thing, the thing that was so remarkable about that experience is I really did learn how to talk to all kinds of people. And what ended up happening is that I graduated. My grandma convinced me to go back and get my master's degree in social work because my grandpa had gotten his master's mm-hmm. degree in social work right after World War II. And she was like, you should go be a social worker. And I was like, mm-hmm. I don't think so. I'm, I'm cleaning people's houses. I'm running my own business. Like, you know, I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. And she's like, no, I really think you should go to school. And so I said, well, I can't pay for school. My grandma said, we'll pay for school if you go to school. I was like, well, okay. And what happened was when I started that master's program, I thought I was going to do play therapy. And I took my very first policy class from a woman named Emma Gross. And everybody else was terrified of Dr. Gross. She was like this butch lesbian woman in Utah at the University of Utah. She was firm in her feminist convictions and her social work convictions. And she taught my policy class. And we sit in this policy class, first class, and she reads the Declaration of Sentiments from the Seneca Falls Convention. And I'm 20, I was 26, 20, 
four years old and I'd never heard it. I'd never heard the Declaration of Sentiments, which is what they wrote at the Seneca Falls Convention in, in favor of the 19th Amendment. Can you give a little bit more context? Because I can't say that I can, I would be able to know what that is. So in the Seneca Falls Convention, where they wrote the night, they drafted the 19th Amendment. It was a group of uh, about 120 women that came together. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, all of the people who drafted the 19th Amendment. And they all came together and wrote this document called the Declaration of Sentiments. Basically, took they took the Declaration of Independence and inserted women throughout the whole entire thing. Oh, you can wow. Google it. It's online. It's amazing. And so Emma reads the Declaration of Sentiments in the first class, and she said, if you are not here in service to equality and justice, then you are not in the right place to all these master's students. And they were like, this is crap. I'm just going to help people, and I'm going to save the world. And I was like, oh. Justice? What is this justice? Wait, is this what I've been talking about this whole time? And it was mind boggling to me that I could learn about policy and how I could impact policy as as a social worker. So I did research. I did the very first research in Utah on homeless LGBT youth for my research project. And I worked with the only agency at the time that was working with homeless youth in Utah. This was 2001, 2002. And we did research as part of my project, identifying LGBT kids, why they were homeless. And Utah had a problem, like 35% of our homeless youth were LGBT, just like everywhere else in the country. We were not unique in Utah in that way. And I realized our law was written that you could not shelter a youth for longer than eight hours without parental consent or emancipation. Eight hours. It's cold in Utah. I don't know if y'all know. It's freezing eight hours. And so uh, we didn't have an emancipation law. The way the law was written is if you were emancipated, you could get shelter. Well, we didn't have an emancipation law. Remember, this is pre-Google, y'all. So I call a friend of mine at the Child Welfare League of America and I said, hey, I'm well, now he's my friend. He wasn't my friend at the time. I cold called him and I said, can you tell me what the emancipation laws all over the country are? <laughs> he was like, who are you? And I was like, I'm <laughs> He ran the LGBT foster care. It was a youth and foster care initiative with Lambda Legal and Child Welfare League of America to help queer kids in foster care. And Rob Warnoff was his name. We're still friends. And so um, he's like, well, yeah. And I said, well, can you like fax them to me? Fax them to me. (laughs) Or I have this new thing called email. I have this Yahoo email account. I have an electrical email email account. Can you mail them? I think he mailed them, honestly. I can't remember. He told me all the states that had emancipation laws. I had to get on the phone and call all of their offices of legislative research and like get all these, put all these laws together. I get them all. I go through and highlight all the lines that I thought would fit well for Utah. And I, on my dining room table while listening simultaneously every other song to Ani DeFranco and Metallica, I wrote the Emancipation of a Minor Bill that is now in law in Utah. Oh my gosh. And, and I did on my dining room table. That's and amazing. that was me. And here is the thing that's so incredible about this. And I want all your listeners to hear this. It does not matter what lights you on fire, what you are passionate about, what, what totally does it for you. There is always a way to make a difference. And not everybody's going to write a law like I did. I mean, I called an elected official and I said, I think I just wrote a law. And she's like, well, send it to me on this highfalutin thing we call email, right? So I email it to her and she calls me back and she's like, Missy, you wrote a law. And I was like, 
oh, okay, what do we do next? And that's the trick. You ask, when you're burned out and you're fried, find somebody to talk to and say, what do I do next? What's my next step? And Roz was like, well, you've got to build a coalition and you've got to talk to all these people. And she gave me a list of stakeholders and she's like, you've got to bring these people together. And I was like, okay. First thing I did was I looked up on our legislative website, how a bill becomes a law because they were building a website, highfalutin things. And I found out how a bill becomes a law in Utah. And that, the process is the same in in almost every state. There's a few little weird things that states do individually. But if you understand how a bill becomes a law in your state, it changes everything because you can figure out the places where you can pass or kill a bill. And so I learned that the first, it died the first year at 11.59 and 59 seconds, the last day of the legislative session. It had been amended in the Senate and had to come back to the House. And um, it died and I was very sad and I got a tattoo. <laughs> and then... <laughs> forward out of darkness, forward into light. Um, and then during the interim in between, we lobbied all of the Republican legislators who were opposed to the bill. I got two Republican sponsors of the bill in the Senate and the house to sponsor it. Cause Roz was a Democrat and I lobbied and the next year it passed and it was slightly unclimatic un- because it passed so fast. I didn't even have to argue or anything. There was no debate. They were like, okay. And I was like, damn it. And I have the pen. Whoa, well, yeah, you're ready, ready to go. go. I was like, you're oh, like, going to argue on, again? I got my arguments. The claws yeah. are out. Uh, the bill <laughs> that's signed by the governor is hanging on the wall um, in my hallway. And I walk by it every day with the pen that the governor, Governor Huntsman, used to sign it. Because it really, truly is one of the greatest wow. moments of my life. Was Because I learned how this process worked. I learned. I was like, nobody taught me that. Right? I had to learn all of that to make this happen because it was about those kids freezing on the street. Like I could not fathom in 10 degree, zero degree weather when the inversion hits in Salt Lake, it's hideous. It's so cold. And these kids are sleeping on the street or they're doing engaging in survival sex so that they have a warm place to sleep. And no child should be having to do that. And that was what really got the legislature is once we got past them, thinking that we were talking about their kids, right? Once we got past that, then we can move forward. And so that was my foray into realizing that I can, I can affect change in policy. And I ended up getting hired as the lobbyist for Planned Parenthood of Utah, which I did for a while. And that was great. And then I was like, I'm done. Planned Parenthood in Utah. And I was like, I'm done talking about sex with the Utah state legislature. I have got to move on. I did great. Like it was really awesome. I passed like four more bills. We did some really incredible work. We built all these coalitions. It was, it was remarkable. And then I was so burned out and so tired that I decided to go get a PhD. When you're burned out and tired, don't decide to go get a PhD is my advice to every single person. Yeah. That doesn't seem like the right logic. (laughs) Go to Bali. Yeah. Go to Bali for a week. Don't don't go get a PhD. So that's what I did. I went and got my PhD um, at USC which I lovingly refer to as the University uh-huh. of Spoiled Children. And what ended up happening is that the 2016 election happened. And the last year I was uh-huh. getting my PhD and I was like, I do not want to go into academia. I'm a really phenomenal yeah. professor and I know there is more for me. And so that's when I started Natural Born Rebel. And I, because I wanted to teach 
women, all those women were so angry. They were like, I don't even know what's happening. And I thought, I'm going to create Rebel School and I'm going to give women, I'm going to teach women what I've been teaching social work students for the last 15 years. Like, how do you engage with your community, find what, what you are engaging in righteous fury about, figure out what flips your skirt and turns you on, and then go out and do that thing in the world. And mm. Um, mm. it's been amazing. Yo, <laughs> wow. That's incredible. What a story. So much <laughs> came up. I feel like I just yeah, like, watched Yeah, the movie. that's what I'm saying. Like, so much. Oh, you saw me right now. I was like, oh, gotta get, I, I got to ask this. You know what I mean? You spoke so much about, um, and I want you to know, I'm, I love the way you celebrate yourself. Like we say in the hood, yo, Thank come you. on, man, talk your shit, bro. Talk your shit. I hear you, <laughs> yo. So I, I really appreciate a brilliance, and I get excited and get motivated when other people are passionate and they know what they did made an impact. You know, so thank you, thank you for that. That was that's that's cool. Keep doing that. Thank you so much, man. You spoke on justice. I always speak on the impact that. Um, and the psychology of creating slave and what how effective it has been throughout history. You know, um, there's a book called Willie Lynch Letters that actually put pen to paper of how to create a slave, you know. And that is, um, I mean, just a, a few things, just taking away education. And it continued to propagate even to today because their individuals are trying to take away political power. And you spoke on both of those things. You educated yourself on how to create a law and you took it to create policy and legislation. That is those kind of things is what like, creates freedom, you know, and that has been taken away from people of color for generations. And, and, and we're here today, you know, really fighting for political power and um, to be educated the right way, the right to have um, healthcare access, the right to live in environments that don't kill us, your zip code shit. So all of these things is what um, I fight for. And just to hear you speaking on education and learning how to um, use your voice and being passionate about something to the point where you're willing to sacrifice everything and stand alone for that until it, like you were crazy enough and delusional enough to feel like one person in Utah can approach the topic of reproductive health. Like that's a lot. I mean, I ain't never, it was a lot. I ain't never been to Utah. <laughs> I've never been to Utah, but I saw big love, you know, like Mormon culture. And I, so I'm making an assumption right now. Like it, 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 it's different out there in Utah. Oh yeah. You know, it's the most beautiful state. Oh shit. It's so beautiful. I, I, I need to go. You know, um, and so I, I'm I'm in awe right now, and I appreciate that. I just had a question. You know, um, what does being a rebel mean to you? Like uh, when you say a rebel, well, what do you? Because me and Emily talk about like uh, the limits to what we would do for what we believe in. You know, unapologetically, like this is what we do, and this is what we we won't do, and this is how far we'll take it. Like you, with you being a rebel, because in my mind, being a rebel is. Or whatever happens, this is what we're going to do, you know? So, like, are there any limits on you being a revolutionary, you being a rebel? What does that mean to you? I think that I actually just taught a Finding the Joy in Feminism masterclass online last night. Who are you, yo? Who are you? I mean, because feminism, (laughs) you know... (laughs) 
I mean, like, can we have some fun being feminists? Like, for just a second, could we make this joyful? And Mm -hmm. for me, right now, I can say this in my middle age. I'm 46. I live in Corvallis, Oregon. Like, you know, let me tell you how my rebellion has changed. And this is what I want people to really understand. Like, that rebel girl, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll at the age of 17 is different. I mean, she's like my foundation. And... Here's my ultimate task of rebellion for everybody. Can we just disrupt with love? Hmm. Can we start to disrupt these narratives? This is what I love about the beloved community that John Lewis and Martin Luther King Jr. always talked about, right? Like, can we really start to look at the beloved community for real and start disrupting white supremacy and racism and patriarchy and our own internalized misogyny with, with love? If we start to disrupt these structures by having compassion for ourselves and other people, it is going to be a game changer. And that to me is truly the ultimate rebellion. When we start to take inspired intentional action, not action for action's sake, but when we start to take inspired intentional action and recognize that injustice affects all of us in the community, And then find the thing that lights us up, whether it's homelessness, domestic violence, you know, LGBT kids, racism, foster care, whatever it elders. How do we treat our elders? Like, can we just, that's a whole nother conversation for a minute. Like the minute we take inspired intentional action, we get clear. Action leads to clarity, leads to confidence. Because we get clear about what we want to do and what we don't want to do, no matter what, when we take action. And then we gain confidence. And if we are gaining confidence from a space of love and compassion and understanding for people who do not look like us or come from our same backgrounds, which let's be real. I would much rather sit in a room and have a conversation with people who help me get out of my silo than people who keep me in it. Hmm. Because that's just a cage. Mm. And I think the ultimate rebellion right now is to really get out of our comfort zone with people and get in that messy middle. And I want to be really clear. I said this last night. I'm not talking about the people on the fringes, right? Like I'm not talking about the terrorists on the left or the right. I'm not talking about the people that cannot hear and aren't willing to get in the mess. There's a saying, no, no mud, no lotus. That lotus flower can't grow without the messy, yucky, gross mud. And that's where most of us are. We're in the mud and we're going, I want to talk to people about something different. That's the rebellion. The rebellion is to stop the judgment and have compassion. And that's a whole, that sets up a whole different conversation when we start to act in alignment with the good of others and ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's the rebellion. The rebellion is not sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's not. It's protesting if you want to. If that is your form of engagement in dismantling systems of oppression, awesome. My form of rebellion and my form of protest is very different. And having space for all of us to engage in those differences, because we're all welcome at the table and taking our seat at the table and moving the other seats aside and like squishing ourselves in. And when it's not safe to do so, figuring out who the people are that can help us be safe to do so 
it's about being open instead of closed, right? Like being open instead of staying in that comfort zone. Yeah. And I, I'm curious to hear, of course, <laughs> as, good, as a good listener, as you're talking, I'm like kind of running through things in my mind and scenarios of how it comes in, in my life. And, you know, obviously thinking about this gun control situation and, and how to find places to have dialogues, which feels so charged right now, like even posting something on social media about like guns, you know, you're going to get attacked by people defending the Second Amendment. I'm curious in your course focuses on women. And as a woman, like, I'm trying to figure out like, what is my what would be my next inspired intentional action around this? And like, so I'm curious, both like, why you're focusing particularly on women? And how would you like, what would you? <laughs> what would you say to someone like me? As in, what would you say to me <laughs> of like feeling paralyzed yeah. with this issue? I, it's interesting that you brought this up because I was talking to my, my husband is a two-time army war veteran and, um, and we have lots of mm. guns and, um, and it is the, I mean, I don't mind having a handgun or a hunting rifle. I grew up in Utah, right? So here, here's one of the things that was interesting is he was trying to get ammo for a couple of our guns because we were going to go shooting this weekend to teach a friend of ours how to use a gun. She's terrified of it. And she's got them from her husband who died and like, blah, blah, blah. So he's like, I can't get ammo. And I was like, why can't you get ammo? And he's like, cause everyone's freaking out that their second amendment rights are going to go to hell and there's no ammo. Like there's been a rush on ammo. Mm -hmm. And Jim and I only argue about assault rifles. So he thinks he needs one. And I think he does not need one. And it is the only thing Jim and I argue about, literally. Like, we don't argue about money like married couples do. We argue about the the guns, right? And we've learned to stop arguing about that. That is one thing that it's like a, it's a no-no zone. It's not about gun control. It's It's about not assuming that only certain people have guns. Jim and I are both liberal Democrats, you know, blah, 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 right? So it's also about not assuming who owns the guns. And it is about putting structures in place and figuring out what structures need to be placed in your community to help pull those dangerous things off of the street and help pull them out of people's hands who mean to do harm. And that means better background checks. That means it not being so easy to access those weapons. And you live in Colorado. And so we know that access is much easier. Jim was buying, when Jim would come visit me in Utah, he lived in California when we first met, he'd come to Utah and buy guns on, on one of the websites. Like you could just get them. You didn't have, you could just go to someone's house and, and get the gun, right? For cash. And so, so it's about creating structures. You're figuring out what it is about gun control that you want to say to your elected officials and then tell them why it bothers you. And I work with women. I don't just work with women. Some of my clients are men, but I mostly work with women because I feel like, I feel like amplifying our voices creates community for all. And this goes back to my knowledge of how women take care of community. We've always done that, right? We've always tended the fires. We've always created the communities that allow for, for men to leave and hunt 
and go to war and come back and have the space. Like this women create community. It's what we do. And in this instance, what I will tell you, Emily, is that you have to find the message about this that makes you bothered so that you can get in touch with your elected officials from a city level all the way up to the federal level and tell them why this is important to you. And then you get 10 of your friends to do the same thing. And you like tell 10 of your neighbors to help you send that message to your elected officials about why this is important and why you want them to take concrete action. This is the thing I love about Shannon Watts. Shannon Watts started her organization because she was after she was just tired of all the shooting and it was a Facebook group. And now she's doing all of this. She's got a whole entire million strong volunteer corps that goes out and fights for safe, logical gun legislation. And so if she can do that, she was just sitting at her kitchen table, just like I was. She just couldn't take the shootings anymore. And so it, it takes understanding that you can, elected officials are not untouchable. We have created these scenarios where elected officials are untouchable. No, they're not. They put their pants on one leg at a time and they, we're paying them with our tax dollars. We pay their <laughs> salaries. They have to listen to us. Yeah. And so this is, can you tell, I get all like ratcheted up on my soapbox. I'm like, listen, like, Elected officials are, are, are not untouchable. And on a state level, they are farmers, they are ranchers, they are attorneys, they are doctors, they're housewives. They are learning about the law, like, right while they're running in making laws, right? Like, they, they run for office for a reason. Mm -hmm. They run for office because they're passionate. We are equally as passionate about the things that light us up. And we have to communicate with them about that. There was a statistic when I was working in the legislature, I left in 2011, and I think this still holds true. It might be a little different, but not much. When they heard from five or more people in their district, they considered it majority rule because they heard from so few people. Five. So let me tell you, if you get 10 people in your neighborhood to connect with your elected officials, at a city, county, and state level, forget the feds, like whatever, city, county, and state politics is where we can make the biggest impact. And if you get 10 or 15 people to send a message to an elected official, they'll listen. And, and you give them your, their, your home address and you tell them you're a constituent and you give them their phone number. It doesn't matter where you are in the country. People will connect with you on that connection level. And that's what I mean about compassion and understanding. You might, your elected official might not have the same political background as you, but you're their boss and you get to make them listen. Wow. What comes up for me with the question that Emily brought up and you spoke on was, it kind of reminds me of the same thing that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did too. She used um, the platform of feminism to elevate and fight for quality for all, you know, and, and that's inspiring. And you're right. Women have been the ones and they showed up again in this last election to, to change it too, especially in Georgia, you know? And so just thinking about the power of that movement, it, it kind of gives me chills. Um, and it is amazing. And then you spoke of the individuals of color have been oppressed and suppressed so much by politics that sometimes we think, why am I going to vote? 
Why am I, why do I even get involved? And that ironically makes it so that we are perpetuating the oppression because we just don't know that five or 10 people can change our lives in our communities. That's very powerful, you know, and um, go out and vote and gerrymandering and redlining and all of these things that make it so that individuals of color in those communities have the least impact on laws is something that is another construct that goes directly against true freedom for all, you know? And so for you to, to educate us and our listeners about the necessity and how important it is to work your elected officials and not just allow them to have a seat that anyone could have because it is set on the pedestal. You mean being a lawyer is set on the pedestal, being a doctor is set on the pedestal when those professions should be held by individuals that really fight and advocate for their people. You know, um, you, you guys both spoke of how our educators is not the highest grossing income in America when they literally set the stage for our futures by educating our, our our kids you know what i'm saying so just changing that whole dynamic is is i mean i'm getting so much just listening to both of you speak that uh, i'm in i'm in awe so so just put a pause i just want to thank you midway you know i just like to celebrate brilliance so thank you appreciate it courtney i want to add something to that that i think is really important one of the things that i do every time we move Mm-hmm. Um, we've been here for a while, so I haven't done it recently, but every time we move, I look up who my elected officials are. Cause you can Google that and yeah. you can look up your elected officials from school board all the way up to the federal level. And I introduce myself to them. I email all of them. I email my school board, my city council, my county council, my state and my federal elected officials. And I tell them who I am. I tell them about my family. You know, I'm married to a disabled veteran. I'm LGBT. I have three kids. These are the three things that are the most important to me. And I look forward to working with you and getting to know you better as your constituent. Mm. And they like write back. Right. And they're like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And I'll tell you how effective that's been. Our, Our eldest daughter, when we moved here to Corvallis, she started in a new high school and she was being sexually harassed. And I went to our um they couldn't do anything about it because of the loophole in the, the way the law was written here in Oregon um, about surveillance of all things. And I went to my Senator and I was like, Hey, we got to do something about this. Our girls are being sexually harassed and you know, the, the principal can't do anything to stop it. And we need to, and she wrote a law and you know, to help with how do we prosecute those things? Right. And so this is Courtney, to your point, this is so important, especially for people people of color and people who are continually marginalized by policy. If they know us, they can't ignore us. And it's very easy to whitewash. It's very easy to put blinders on. It's very easy for elected officials to stay in their silo too. And if we're introducing ourselves to people on that very community-based level and saying, this is who I am, this is who my family is. These are the things that are important to me. I look forward to watching you work in the legislature, then when they do something that you think is unsavory, you can pick up the phone and be like, yo, like I, I'm your 
your constituent. And I told you, these are the things that are important to your constituency. And then if they don't listen, you just run against them. See, you, you spoke <laughs> about being being seen. Wow. You spoke about being seen. You know, yeah. that's yeah. that's huge. You know, a lot of times individuals kind of um, make it okay to do the most egregious acts because they don't yes. see the, the 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 results of said action. You know, and so slavery, I mean, that's the most uh, yeah. egregious to me in my mind. You know, um, like we always say, you aren't born to hate. You know, if you put your blinders on, it makes it kind of more comfortable to to allow certain things to happen. So humanizing an issue, making it like, what if that was my son, daughter, um, husband or wife, brother or sister type situation? It, it makes it less likely that the majority of us would engage in those actions. So that is true. Once you've seen, you can't unsee truth, you know, and so that's 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 amazing. Yeah. Missy, listening to you, something is really just like settling in my heart, um, which is when I asked, like, why are you focusing on women? I thought in my mind, and this just says so much about our conditioning, I feel like I thought in my mind that you were going to talk about, you know, women are taught to be nice and women are taught to not speak out and that type of thing. And the, the fact that you said that we're focusing on women because women take care of the community, that just like really flipped some ideas for me. And I'm getting choked up because, <laughs> yeah, I just feel like we've lost sight of that, you know, and we're... <laughs> We're just in a really bad place. And, and we're all so distracted by the busyness that we've created, you know? And that's like historically our role. Yeah. And busyness, by the way, is a cover for trauma. So mm -hmm. one thing I'm starting to notice that people are starting to talk about more and more is how we avoid dealing with emotion and trauma and grief by being busy. So, and what you're talking about, Emily, is this collective grief that we have brought to the surface that has really been brought to the surface over the last four, four to five years, right? Is this idea of collective grief and collective trauma and generational trauma. I mean, I mentioned earlier that about my great grandmother, my great, great grandmother and healing that generational trauma and and, you know, Courtney, you keep bringing up slavery, like that there is generational wound healing happening. And in the meantime, the natural response as a result of patriarchal oppression is to be busy because the more we perform and the more we perform and the more we perform, the less likely it is that the patriarchy is going to lose its stronghold and we might actually gain equality for all. And so the busier we get, the more we can push down that trauma and, and push it all the way down because we're just too, too busy to deal. And let's be clear, like we do not grieve well in this nation. We do not handle grief very well at all. And when we don't allow ourselves to grieve, not just the generational trauma, but the loss that we experience in our community as a result of violence and shootings and death and destruction 
I mean, we have dehumanized homelessness to the point where we don't even see it anymore. And we have people living in tent cities and nobody is coming together to ask those homeless people, do you need help? What do you need? We're making assumptions about what people need so that we can feel like we're busy doing things. And we're not actually asking people what they need because Emily, what you're identifying here is that we need a good grieving session. We need to be able to feel all the feels of grief to heal that wounding and then move out into the community and say, okay, what do you need? How can I help you? Totally. And that's exactly what you're identifying. And busy is a cover for trauma. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, I was at this a couple of years ago, this wake up festival hosted by, uh, sounds true in Boulder and, uh, Matthew Fox. Have you come across his work? Mm-hmm. Um, Missy, you might really like his work. Cool. He does a lot of like embodied experiential work. And I was in a room of like, a must've been about a thousand, 1500 people. And he was on stage talking about how in the U S in particular, we've lost A lot of people don't go to churches. A lot of people don't Mm -hmm. go to synagogues. And that's a place for grief. And grief is a collective experience. It is not an emotion. It's a collective experience. And he's like, and we need to move through the grief to get to the silence from which then creativity is born. And so he had us, this was a crazy experience. He he took everyone, everyone put their chairs on the side of the room. And he's like, grief is a uh, a five pointed position. You get on your hands and your knees and your your forehead on the ground. Ooh. And he had he had everyone in that room. It was, it was nine o'clock in the morning. He just said, everyone start from your belly, just like kind of like moaning. Right? This was yeah. like, okay, I guess I'm gonna do this. And everyone, grief was just beneath the surface for oh, everyone. Yeah. Everyone in that room held by everyone in that room, in their own experience, just allowed the grief that needed to be held to come out. And then (laughs) then we went on with the rest of our day. It was so simple, so powerful. And is always stuck, you know, he was talking about climate change in particular. He's like, we're not going to be able to solve climate change until we grieve. And that's a really nice reminder of like, of course, that's relevant to these other issues as well. It's really powerful. It is. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, Emily. Um, just what you brought up just then. I, I recently started hearing this thing about being grounded, being grounded, being grounded. You know, I, I was like, yo, what kind of white people shit is this? You know, when I first came to, to Ego, <laughs> like, what the fuck are y'all talking about being? It's actually very yeah, indigenous. Yeah, that's, that's how ignorant. That's oh. how ignorant I, I was like, you know, let me let me just give you a little brief less like, People of color, when we don't understand the shit, it just defaults to being some white people shit. Like that's just what it is. So I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know what it was. So I'm thinking about <laughs> being grounded. I'm like, but then when I, when I stopped to really feel some shit, like I, I started being more creative and being more open and and being more more ready mm-hmm. to receive, like. Me and my business partner always say our company, both of them are built on pain. That's why we're going to be the most successful. 
Because when you come from a place of pain and you come from a place of understanding why we do what we do, now you can reverse engineer a solution. The vision is we all out here, we all in pain, not just people of color, everyone in the world. If you want to really get to it, we're all in pain. Now, what are we going to do to address that pain? You know, and so like... Looking at my co-host, you know what I mean, being vulnerable, I'm about to cry like, yo, damn, I think I care about Emily a little bit more today, you know? And so, like, she she brought that, you know? Like, I'm like, damn, Emily, you okay? I mean, you you can't make me cry on on, on air, you know? So, I I appreciate you for, for centering me today, you know? And then, Melissa, you just bringing in how distractions are cover-up for pain. And again, though... People of color have to be distracted, though, because we don't know how not to. If we lived with the pain, I don't think we would live. You know, if we addressed every pain all day long, I don't think we could do what we need to take care of our family. So the conditioned tendency to distract ourselves with further disrespect, clothes, music, sports. Things that are not inherently bad, but things that help us to get through the day. You know, like we're pushed down by so many things that those distractions serve a purpose. So when we come to a place when talking to someone like you says, use that, identify that, like respect that pain, see that trauma. You know, that's that's something that is um, is powerful. Is almost priceless, you know, and uh, so I appreciate you both for um, for teaching me today. You know, like I'm I'm in, I'm in class, I'm taking notes, I'm sitting here, I'm like, yo, this debrief episode gonna be fire, boy, cause like, damn, like I don't even want to, <laughs> I don't even want to <laughs> say nothing right now. So I appreciate y'all, man. Thank you, Courtney. I think it's like it's so important what you just brought up because, and it it just illustrates so beautifully what I was talking about earlier with talking to people who don't look like us or come from our same backgrounds, which is why I think what y'all are doing with this podcast is so powerful. That is an intersection for us to walk towards together, this shared trauma and this shared shit that we keep pushing away and pushing away and pushing away. And how do we hold hands and sit around the table and say, I see you and I recognize you. And how do we ground ourselves Listen, I teach my clients grounding. So if you need a good lesson, Courtney, I'm all over it. Okay? Like, how do we ground ourselves? How do we connect to the divine in whatever way we define that? And how do we ground ourselves all the way into the roots of Mother Earth to be held by her strength? And how do we hold space for us to sit around the table and do that together? Because that is what this is about. It's about not ignoring what is sitting right here in the room. And that is all three of us and whoever is listening. The three of us are sitting here recognizing and seeing the things we have done to avoid and the things we have done to embrace. And that is where we make change as rebels. That is the ultimate rebellion is actually giving ourselves space to grieve and connect and experience the groundedness of those shared experiences. And the more we pretend that we are different, the more 
the patriarchy wins. Well, goddamn, goddamn, goddamn. Woo! Episode. <laughs> Whoa. Well, I am. <laughs> I. <laughs> I think that um, a lot of our listeners right now are probably asking, you know, how do I work with you more? How do I connect with you more? Can you tell us about that as as we wrap up? Because the clock is telling us we have to wrap up. I'm not ready to wrap up, but <laughs> I'll come back. We'll have another talk. Okay. Good. Um, <laughs> uh, you can find me on my website at naturalbornrebel.com. I teach Rebel School three times a year, and that is a 12-week online course for 10 women in each group. And I, I would be happy to expand Rebel School out to other different groups. So if that's something people are interested in, I'm happy to do that as well. I do workshops. I'm almost vaccinated, so I'm really excited. I do <laughs> workshops online and in person, and I do anti-racism work about discovering, disrupting, and dismantling your beliefs and fears about talking about racism. So if people mm -hmm. are interested in bringing that to their community, I can do that online really easily. I talked to a group of realtors a couple months ago about doing that kind of work. Uh, and so I will talk to anyone about dismantling, disrupting, and um, discovering your beliefs around racism and how to dis, you know, disrupt those. I am also a lay preacher in the Episcopal church. And so, and a practicing witch. So if we could get into that another day too. And so I, I, I really love talking about Christianity and social justice and then the purpose of that. So you can find me on my website. All the things are there. I will have links to all that in our show notes as well. So people can find you as, as quick as possible. So. Yes. We definitely need to talk about a practicing witch. I, I'm, I'm uh, like, I need to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. I know. I know. I need to hear more too. So thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's such an honor. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.